0: This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good
1: morning. Today's scripture reading is Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 24, found on page 625 of your pew Bibles. Isaiah 66, starting in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh, harsh treatment for them, and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes, and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. That you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. That you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will... Send peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I shall comfort you, you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice, your bones shall flourish like grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the mist, eating pigs' flesh and the abomination in mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming together, all nations and tongues. They shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pole, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules, and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel— to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come and worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh."
0: amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Uh, Thus concludes our time in Isaiah. Um, Yeah, we're going to dive in. Let me pray for us and then we'll uh, we'll hear, hear the word from Isaiah 66. God, this morning we thank you once again, for your word. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for this book. God, thank you for uh, all that you have spoken and all that you have declared. Thank you for the ways that you speak to us and remind us of who you are, remind us of what you're doing, remind us of what you're like, that you have revealed yourself and your purposes and your plans. God, this morning, I ask as we hear from this text, um, even from the beginning, God, I ask that you would make us, by your spirit, the type of people that this passage declares that your eyes are upon. Would you make us humble? Would you make us contrite in spirit? And would you make us tremble at your word? God, would that be our the posture that we have before you, would you soften us, make us receptive, make us ready to receive? Would you make us aligned with what you desire by your power? God, would you give us spirit of revelation, spirit of grace, both on the speaking and the hearing of your word this morning? Would you fill us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as we come to a close in our time in Isaiah, I don't know if you felt that as we read through it, but it could be tempting to see this final chapter as a little bit of a disassociated series of declarations from God to his people. In some ways, we probably would have liked the the book to end with uh, the end of 65, the new heavens and the new earth. This would be the portrait that we have of how Isaiah ends his book. And we might be tempted to see this as like disassociated or just a series of proclamations. But the prophecy that as Isaiah draws to a close, God once again reminds his people of some necessary and essential truths that will sustain their hearts, stabilize their souls in the midst of a world that continues to be marked by sin and by pain. He speaks again words of truth and comfort to steady them as they wait for the full and final accomplishment of his redemption in all of the earth. In many ways, this chapter is a perfect way to end the book. That has spanned centuries of God's redemptive narrative as Isaiah laid it out for us, right? Isaiah speaks uh, this broad, overarching narrative that goes from the time where he was situated dealing with real circumstances and real troubles that they were facing. He then goes forward hundreds of years to speak to a future time of trouble and pain and difficulty and even all the way to the very end when God would bring full and final redemption. He breaks in and this this chapter is a great way to close this up as we're called again to a place of putting our hope and our trust in God, who sits enthroned over all the heavens. Isaiah has been committed from the beginning of his prophecy to demonstrate that God will stop at absolutely nothing, to bring glory to his name, and to prepare a people who will dwell with him forever. We've seen through Isaiah what that work looks like. It looks like there will be certain judgment against rebellion and sin. We've seen that over and over and over again. We see that God promises that he will bring redemption and salvation. We see that he'll bring absolute transformation to his people who are marked by hardness and stiff neckness. Through their lives, he'll bring transformation to where they're no longer rebellious and hardened against him. They will be like a crown of jewels in his hands. We see a new work of creation, defeating death, bringing perfect righteousness and peace and justice to all the ends of the earth for all eternity. We see a great ingathering of all the nations. Yet, Built into Isaiah's own prophecy is an understanding that there will be some measure of delay in God's activity. There will be times where he seems to be restrained or silent, you could say, in his work. This is where Isaiah ended his prayer in chapter 64. We've looked at over the last several weeks. Uh, He ends his prayer with this question to God, Why are you restrained toward us? Why do you seem to be silent? Will you remain silent? There's even built into Isaiah's prophecy this idea that there's going to be a delay before God brings about his full and perfect work of salvation and transformation. So to close his work, he offers a portrait of yet another word from God, Intended to strengthen the heart and invite his people to humble trust in His word alone. That's what this chapter is for us. As he closes the book, he does one more time what he has done again and again and again and again, is painting for us a picture of what God is going to do, who God is. And what it looks like to put humble trust in his word alone. So this section of scripture, I'm going to look at three things for us this morning. And I'm going to go out of order. I'm going to come back to the beginning to close our time. But I'm going to start in the middle and work to the end and then come back to the beginning. But I've got three things that I want us to see this morning as it relates to this chapter as we come to a close in our time. The first thing I want us to see is this section reminds us that God's promises, God's work, God's accomplishing of all of his purposes are certain. This word is intended to strengthen us to remember that when God speaks, we can put it in the bank. We can rest all of our lives upon it. God's Word of salvation is certain. That's the first thing that I want us to see. The second thing that I want us to see is that God again promises to save those who belong to him while he promises to judge those who rebel against him. And lastly, I want us to close our time in Isaiah by looking at this glorious truth that God's eyes are on the humble on those who are contrite of spirit, those who tremble at his word. So that's where we're gonna look at this morning. So beginning with the certainty of God's word, this verses seven to 14 paint for us a picture here. One of the primary doubts that regularly comes to us in the midst of our world is a nagging question. Can God really do all he promised. I don't know if you feel the temptation to that, right? Like when we walk through this life, there's moments where we read the scripture and our hearts are awakened to the truth of what God's promised and we long for it and we hope that he will bring about a day when uh, he overcomes sin and its effects, and He fully and finally saves and recreates the whole of the world. We long for those things, and then we walk back into the world, and we can be tempted to have this nagging question Can God really do what He promised? Can God really accomplish everything that He said? Has anyone heard of such miraculous and glorious things? Does this not fly in the face of everything that the world around me, my circumstances, life in this present age tells me to believe, tells me to think? It is, I believe, one of the most profound struggles and temptations of what it means to walk through this world is that temptation to disillusionment, despair, offense, discouragement, as we continue to hope for the truth of God's word. Like the initial hearers of Isaiah, we find ourselves in the midst of a world still waiting for God to accomplish his perfect work of recreation and renewal. We've seen the glorious salvation of God that's been made known in Christ Jesus. We celebrate that. We've tasted of that. We bank our hope in it. We put all of our trust into it. And yet we wait for the days when he will fully and final, finally consummate all of his promises. It's in those places we're tempted to offense, right? Offense with the way that he leads. We don't understand. We can't make sense of it oftentimes. We're tempted to despair, right? Despair is the belief that nothing's ever gonna change, right? Tomorrow's not gonna be any different than today. We're tempted to despair. We're tempted to be discouraged or disillusioned in the midst of a world continued that's continually marked by sin and the curse. But God promised that his accomplishment of his purpose will come about in such a transformational way that his city, the city that from the jump has been called a rebellious city, one that's marked by defilement and all these kind of things. He says, no longer will this place be forsaken or forgotten, but will be fruitful and abundant in life. Look with me at verse seven. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. I mean, think of that picture. How remarkable is that, right? Before you feel a single labor pain, you've already given birth, fruitful. Before pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who could believe such a thing to be true, right? Who could see this? Could a land really be born in a day? Could a nation come forth right out of nothing? The the question comes to us just like we have. Can God really do this? Can this glorious, wonderful, beautiful, amazing picture of full redemption, does he really have the power to do it as we walk through this world where everything around us tells us that he can't or it's never going to change or nothing's going to ever be different? Have we heard of such amazing things? Could it really happen? God gets us to this place and he says, I'm not leading you to that point and leaving you there. That's what this image is trying to get us to. He says, I'm gonna do such a profound work of redemption and renewal and recreation that all that is wrong with the world will be undone. And it will be like a woman in childbirth that before she even experiences one pain, the baby's there. Now look with me at verse nine. Here's what I really want us to see this morning in this first section. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to come forth? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb? What God's saying here is, do you think that I would lead you all the way to the point of the consummation of these things and forget about it? Do you think I'm the kind of God who would bring you up to the line and right as we got to that point, I would just abandon it and leave it to be and not fulfill it? What God's giving us by this picture is he is saying, if I tell you I am going to do it, you can take it to the bank. I will fully accomplish it. I will fully do it. I won't lead you to the place of bringing it forth and then leave you there. I'm not going to walk all the way up to the line and not finish what I started, God says. This demonstrates that the promise related to the salvation of God's people, a future day marked by fruitfulness, not by barrenness, will come. Even if there appears to be a delay, he won't bring us to the point of birth and leave us there. He's not going to abandon his purposes and his plans. This is a remarkable truth for us, right? As Isaiah comes to the end of this book, he wants us to remember all that has come before, all of God's words, all of God's promises. I'm going to bring wholesale salvation to the earth. I'm going to transform the world. I'm going to make a new heavens, a new earth. I'm going to save my people. I'm going to send a servant who will... Uh, die and take upon them the penalty for their sins. I'm going to restore them. I'm going to uh, preach liberty to the captives. I'm going to set them free. I'm going to change the entire cosmos through my peace and justice and righteousness forever. He wants us to go, you're not going to say all those things and lead us all the way up to that and then abandon it. It is Certain is what God's getting at here. He wants us to feel in our experience, God's promises are guaranteed. If God says it, he's going to accomplish it. If God speaks it, he is going to do it. He is not the type of God who would lead us up to the point of seeing all these things come together and then leave us there. That's the first thing that's important for us to see this morning. This is certain. God's promises are certain. They, are, they, they will be fulfilled exactly how he promised them. That's one thing I want us to see this morning. The second thing I want us to see is that this chapter again And it's a beautiful way to end the entirety of Isaiah because this has been his message throughout the book. He shows us one final time that God will save those who are his but will judge the wicked. This is verses 15 to 24. We've seen this again and again and again throughout the latter part of Isaiah, throughout the book, on the whole, God evaluates things as they truly are, not only as they appear. What we see here is that the final work of God that he'll bring about, uh, will bring about judgment to the wicked and salvation to those who are his. The section opens with a word of judgment against those with whom the Lord is angry. Look at verse 15. He says, behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury his rebuke with flames of fire, for by fire the Lord will enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, those slain by the Lord shall be many. We see it open with this word of judgment against those with whom he is angry. They'll be consumed by his fire, judged by his sword, we see. The judgment against them is right because look at verse 18. The Lord knows their works and he knows their thoughts. God says, I have anger, fury against those who rebel against me and maintain their rebellion against me. I know their works. I know their thoughts. What he's saying there is, I bring righteous and just judgment. This reminds us that there is a final day in which God will act To bring about his redemption in the full measure of his purposes. His new creation will come, and in that day, those that have rebelled will experience his justice and his wrath. Yet in the meantime, the Lord promises that he will set a sign for the nations, even to the ends of the earth. Look with me at verses 18 to 21. And they shall come and they shall see my glory. This is the end of verse 18. And I will set a sign among them and from them I will send survivors to the nations. They will declare my glory among the nations and they shall bring your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. So in a remarkable turn at the end of the book, God promises once again that his work of redemption will touch the ends of the earth. Those who believed that they were God's people simply by their ethnicity or their external rituals might be mistaken. Right, We've seen all through this section that began in chapter 56, there's been this portrait where God has spoken out against just like external religion or external participation in the rituals of worshiping him. And he says, that's not what I'm interested in. And so he says, there's actually going to be a day when even to the ends of the earth, even to those who are not my people, those who are not called by my name, I will send out many who will give witness to who I am and I will set a sign among them that they might come and see my glory. God's purposes were never simply so that Zion would be set up as this like amazing thing to glory in, that they would be proud or they would be at the first before everything. His purposes were always that the nations would be drawn to experience his glory and his salvation. So in a remarkable picture, we see a whisper here of something that we're going to see fulfilled through Christ Jesus and his church. We see the missionary sending that would be accomplished because of Christ and the sending of the spirit. Look at at, uh, verse 19. I will send survivors to the nations. Do you see that? There's a whisper here. Most of the Old Testament, the missionary energy of the Old Testament is the nations will come and see the glory of God among the people of God. We see this really beautiful fragment and whisper here of the way that God is going to do it in the time of salvation where he says, I'm gonna send people. I'm gonna send people to the ends of the earth. I'm gonna send them to proclaim the good news of salvation. We see them sent out to declare the glory of God. The work of salvation is so glorious, we see that some from the nations are brought back to the Lord, made priests and Levites in his temple. With this, the end of Isaiah brings to a close the larger section we've been in, Isaiah 56 to 66, where it opened with the promise that the nations and even eunuchs would be able to serve in God's house. In Isaiah 56, verse six and seven, I wanna just read this to you. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, they hold fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So these will be brought in to experience The new heavens, the new earth for all eternity Experience the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made to his people. So what he says at the end is something he's been saying all throughout. We see this, right? I'm going to bring judgment to those who rebel against me, but I am going to move in such a way to bring salvation and I will set a sign among the nations of who I am and what I've done and people from the farthest reaches of the ends of the earth. That's what those... Uh, nations are in verse 19 they're the farthest reaches that you could imagine he says even from the farthest ends of the earth I'm going to send people to declare my glory and my salvation and I'm going to bring them in and they will be to me priests and Levites in my house forever this is what God ends this prophecy with yet again He says, this is what I'm going to be about doing. I am going to make a way of salvation that is so beautiful, so comprehensive, so unthinkable to your minds, Israelites, as you're hearing this, that it is going to gather the nations of the earth into my family. Now, this is what we see happen in the ministry of Christ Jesus And in the birth of the church and the missionary zeal that is to uh, move the church from Jerusalem, Samaria to the ends of the earth, Jesus has come and provided a way for any and all who call upon his name to come into the family of God, being brought in and made priests before him those who stand in his presence and experience his salvation. We see that fulfilled in Christ Jesus. But as if to remind those who hear the promise of his salvation, not to persist in rebellion or presume on his grace, the book ends with a final picture of destruction and desolation awaiting the wicked. Those who experience the saving power of God will be welcomed into the new creation forever, we see in verses 22 and 23. While those who persist in rebellion, rebellion, denying the sign that's displayed for the nations to see, rejecting the message of salvation in Christ, they will experience an eternal death. That's verse 24. It's a grim way to end the book, but it's a sober way to reorient again the severity and the reality of what sin has done in this world and the remarkable reality of God's salvation that he has made known in spite of that. So we see again this dual message that's been with us from the very jump of Isaiah. I'm going to save those who are mine And I will bring justice and judgment for those who persist in rebellion. Turn with me back to the beginning of 66. So where I want us to end our time is with this reality, just the first two verses really. At the head of this chapter, there is a remarkable invitation and a reminder to any and all who would hear. If the promises that have been given to us throughout the book, the whole of this book and in the rest of Isaiah 66 are that God is working to bring glory to himself and to prepare a people who will dwell with him forever, what does it mean for that to be a reality, right? What does it mean? Isaiah 66 verses one and two, I think you could say, is a summary statement of the whole book. It is in some ways like a thesis statement of the book of Isaiah. Who God is and what he requires. Who God is and what he requires. Again, if the whole of Isaiah could be summarized as God will stop at nothing. He will do whatever it takes to bring glory to his name so that all will see the majestic splendor of who God is in his character and in his nature. And he's doing whatever it takes to prepare a people who will dwell with him forever. These two verses are a beautiful way to end the whole of this prophecy. Almost like a Summary statement, if you will. God begins by declaring that the heavens belong to him and the earth is but a place for his feet. Look at this. Heaven is my throne, says the Lord, and earth is my footstool. It's like the comprehensive magnitude of how big the world is. God says it's like a, like a stool that I rest my feet on. I sit enthroned on heaven itself. The magnitude of the the heavens above are like a chair that I sit in and the earth is like a footstool for me. He says, I look at that as far as my transcendence and my majesty and my glory. Because of this, he asks, what then is the house that you could prepare for me? Look at that. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? What an unbelievable question, right? What kind of house do you think you could build me? Says God. Do you think if you got all of the riches and all of the wealth and all of the precious metals and all of the best materials and all of the space you could even think of in this world and you built me a house, what what would it be compared to who I am? What would it be compared to who I am? This is how Solomon begins his prayer when he builds the temple and he says, God, I've, I've spent all of this money This is the most glorious temple we've ever built for you. You can't even dwell in houses made by human hands. What are we to think that your majesty and your glory and your splendor and your transcendence, your immensity could be kept in this building? God says, heaven, the highest heavens above are like a chair that I sit in. The earth is like a stool that I prop my feet in. Where do you think I'm going to rest? Where do you think I'm going to live with you? Where do you think you could build a house that could contain me, says God? This question, it's important for us to note that God's not actually saying that he's against temple building in and of itself, right? He told Moses to build the tabernacle. He blessed David's desires to build the temple. He allowed Solomon to build the temple. What God's getting at here is what he's gotten at through this section again and again and again and again. And he's gonna tell us the other side of the question here in a minute. He's declaring that he is not concerned with our external realities. He's not looking for our ritual, our practice, how big we can make something, how grand we can make it, how loud we can get, all of those kind of things if it does not correspond to internal reality. A summary statement yet again of something that he's said again and again and again and again through the book. Let me give you three places we've heard this before in Isaiah. Isaiah 1, 12 to 15. When you come to appear before me, who's required of you the trampling of my courts? Stop bringing me vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. Again, God is not saying stop offering the incense. He's not saying, stop spreading out your hands. What he's saying is, doing all these external things, it doesn't matter how many of them you do, how loudly you do them, how intensely you do them. If the internal reality of your soul does not align with truth, it doesn't matter. Isaiah 29, 13. He talks about bringing judgment upon his people, and he says, I do this because... This people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're content to go through the motions, to show up, to do the rituals, to do the practices, to do the things in the eyes of people, but their hearts are far from me, says the Lord. Isaiah 58, verse 5, we saw it here. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself, you could say an appearance? Is it to bow down his head like a reed, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? He asks the question, do you think I'm concerned only with what you do externally? All of these practices, all of these rituals, all of these things, if not aligned internally with a heart that is toward me, I do not desire them. So God again in this section declares that those who simply perform external ritual are loathsome to him. Look at verse three. He says, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. What God's getting at there is he's saying, these people are going through the external motions. I would rather they were just sinning. Now he doesn't rather that they would sin, but their heart is so far from him. He's like, I compare it to, they're just offering pig's blood, which is an abhorrence in his law, right? He says, They think they're worshiping me because they're going through all of these motions, but their hearts are far from me, so I consider it as if they were killing someone, breaking a dog's neck and offering pig's blood and giving themselves away to idols. He's again talking about the internal reality. This is what Jesus would come to say in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, hey, you've heard it said, if somebody murders someone, this is what is to be of them. But I tell you, if you're angry in your heart, this is what it is. Anyone that lusts after a woman is guilty of adultery. Like Jesus realigns it again into the internal realities of our hearts before God. And this is what is happening. He's saying, I am high and lofty. I sit enthroned over the heavens. The earth is like my footstool. Do you think that I just wanted you to build me a house? Is that what you thought I wanted? To that, God declares what kind of house he does want, where he looks. Look at this. This is glorious. Verse two, all these things my hand has made, and so these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one upon whom I will look. says, I have everything in heaven. I have everything in earth. Heaven's like a seat for me to sit on. Earth is like a stool for my feet. I do look upon something though. I look upon the one who is humble, contrite in spirit and trembling at my word. God declares here the type of house, you could say, that he desires the place where he will rest. He says that his eyes are on something. There is a type of person who he looks upon and he lays it out. There's three realities that we see here. The first is he said, the one who is humble. The one who is humble. Humility here is simply agreement with the truth of God. That's what humility is. Humility isn't a... Like personality disposition. It's not like a timidity or a cowering in the face of something. Humility is being aligned with what God says is true, right? So when we look at God in his glory, and we understand that he has created all things, that he is majestic and beautiful and full of splendor, and then we see ourselves rightly in in light of him as those who are sinful and rebellious and in need and broken, that's what it means to be humble. When we rightly evaluate and rightly see in accordance with God's truth. So he says, this is one that I'll look at. This is one that my eyes fall upon. One who is humble, rightly aligned with my truth, sees me as glorious, understands their place before me. The second he says is contrite in spirit. This you could say, Jesus comes comes along and in the Sermon on the Mount gives other language for this. He could say poor in spirit or uh, those that mourn, right? To be contrite in spirit means that we are rightly aligned under the weight of our own inabilities, our own shortcomings. That's both because of our sin and because of our frailty as humans, both of those realities, when we come face to face with them, that God is holy and glorious and perfect and majestic and his standards are perfect and glorious and we fall short of them, we have fallen short of his glory again and again and again because of our sin. The experience of that gap is contrition of spirit where we become contrite, saying, I am poor and needy. I am broken. I am dust. There is, I have nothing to bring but need. That's what he says. He says, this one I'll look at. I look at the humble. I look at the contrite of spirit. And I look at those who tremble at my word. This, you could say, is a willingness to wholly and fully submit ourselves to the ways of God. This is an alignment of our hearts that says, whatever you say is true, and whatever you say, I will submit myself to it. I will align myself to it. By your grace, I believe that everything that you declare to be good and true is good and true. And if you declare it to be right, I align myself with it. I don't ask you to bend who you are to meet my fancy or my desires or my internal world or what I want. I submit all that I am, all that I desire, all that I want up under your ways. And if you say it, then it's right and good and true and beautiful. And I will submit myself to that. There's two passages I want, I want you to see in relation to this. Ezra comes along and gives us a beautiful picture of this in the life of the people of God when they returned from exile. Ezra 9.4 says, says it this way. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. What he's saying is when we started to read the scriptures together, we saw the disparity between what God desired and who we are. And that gap made us tremble at our faithlessness and our inability to do it. And so all we could do is lay ourselves out before him in mourning and in weakness and petition him to show up and save us. Again, in Ezra ten three he says it this way. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all of these things according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. What they're getting at there is, Ezra says that initial mourning, that initial trembling, that initial repentance manifested itself in the way that we lived. Right, like later we first saw what God desired, what he commanded, what he said was good and we realized how far off we were from it. And we humbled ourselves, we petitioned uh, the Lord saying we have nothing to offer, we have nothing to bring. We, We humble ourselves before you, we tremble at your word. Then he says that trembling at the word actually expressed itself. What had happened in Ezra was they were marrying these foreign wives and God had told them not to. And so in that, the trembling caused them to realign their actual life underneath what God had revealed to be true. So trembling at the word of God isn't just like an emotional experience, it is a willing submission that says what you say is good and right. And would you, by your grace, align every part of my life up with what you say? So if you declare something as good, right, pure, I want to declare that as good, right, and pure. If you declare something as good or something as evil I want to declare that as good or evil would you by your grace bring up all of my life under your word and reorient me in accordance with it okay so how I want to close our time in Isaiah is this before we come to the table together I want to take a minute and just ask the Lord for this grace like this is grace right It takes the spirit of God to move on the heart of his people to even make us the kind of people that he would look at, right? Like we can't produce in ourselves humility. We can't produce in ourselves contrition and we can't produce ourselves uh, trembling at his word. And so I want to actually ask together As we close our time in Isaiah, if this is like the summary, like how do we respond? God says, "I am high and lofty; I sit enthroned in the heavens. The earth is my footstool, but I look to these type of people." I'm going, God, I want to be that type of person. I want to be the kind of person that your eyes fall upon when you look to and fro throughout the earth. Let my heart be humble, contrite, trembling at your word. I actually want to ask God by his grace that he would fashion us into that type of people. So would you stand with me? I'm going to just pray for us. And then we're going to come to the table together. Let's just take a moment, just wherever you are. Let's just come before the Lord and ask him for that. Don't don't be like content with me asking it for you. Maybe ask the Lord yourself. God, make me humble. God, would you realign my perception of reality in accordance with your truth? God, would you show me your glory, your majesty, your splendor? And would you show me my need? God, would you make us a people who is contrite? In spirit. God, would you give us the gift that comes from experiencing your grace, your glory, your splendor, and our need, which is to be contrite before you, to remember that we need you, to remember that we have nothing, that we are dust. And we need you to move. We need you to save. We need you to empower. We need you to come close to us. God, and I want to ask that you would make us a people who tremble at your word. God, I I ask even right now, would you allow us to be reoriented around what you say? Fully submitted. Fully submitted. God, would you let there be no place in our lives where we hold on to something and say, you can't have that or we ask you to bend or move around our desires our longings our preferences our our wants god would you make us as a people i ask for this family that we would be marked as a people who tremble at your word. God, we say we have no other hope, no other help but you. God, you are high and lofty. You sit enthroned in the heavens and the earth is your footstool. God, so would you, would you come against every place in our hearts where we are content to either go through the motions or think that because of our endeavors and our labors and our activities and our uh, works that we could create a place suitable for you to dwell. God, you do declare that you are You look upon those who are humble, contrite, and trembling at your word. So we ask for that gift. And we recognize and remember and honor how you have saved, how you have worked. We remember that you have not left us without hope you haven't left us without a testimony of who you are you haven't left us God you demonstrated your love and your salvation and your power and on the night he was betrayed Jesus He took a loaf of bread. He broke it. He said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. It's broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine and he passed it. And he said, this is the blood, my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and drink of it. Do this in remembrance of me. So we're going to come and receive elements this morning. The way we take communion at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers in the front, middle, and up in the balcony. And we have this morning a little bit different. We've got a gluten-free station that is going to be in tinction. So a wafer and you dip it into the cup Uh, up here to my right um, if you need that. If you're a If you're in the room and you put your faith in Jesus, we wanna invite you to come and take this with us. If if you don't put your faith in Jesus, if you're not trusting in him this morning, if you're not believing in him this morning for your salvation, we ask that you not come and take this meal with us. This meal is for uh, the family of God, those who have experienced salvation in Jesus Christ. Um, We're glad you're here, but we ask that you not come and take this with us. We have prayers um, in cards uh, in the seat backs in front of you if, you if you need help as to like what it might look like to talk to God this morning. Um, but uh, for those of you who are coming, uh, come and receive uh, the elements this morning, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Um, we're gonna not be in a hurry uh, as, as always. We have people in the sanctuary that would love to pray with and for you. If there's places in your heart where you're going, uh, I, want, I want my heart to experience Uh, more humility, more contrition, more trembling at the word of God. Like I wanna submit myself to him. We have people that would love to pray with and for you. Um, If you're sick in your body and and, uh, wanna ask God to move, uh, come and receive prayer. Uh, We're not in a hurry. We're gonna respond through song and come into the Lord's table this morning whenever you're ready.